Welcome to Scripture Central. We're thrilled to have you here. Just a quick note, this video is a revamped edition of this video series from four years ago. The content, however, is as relevant and insightful as ever. We also invite you to explore our extensive collection of resources and programs designed to enhance your study of the scriptures. You can do this by visiting scripturecentral.org. Now, let's dive into the lesson. Of all of the chapters in the Book of Mormon that uh, have had an impact on my life, I have to just say First Nephi chapter 8 was my first real uh, profound memory, deep memory of the Book of Mormon. I don't know how old I was, six, seven years old at the most. I can still in my mind's eye remember sitting in my bedroom, sitting in bed with one of those old light blue uh, copies of the Book of Mormon with the angel Moroni on the front. And I had read diligently through chapters one through seven, and then this particular day I got to chapter eight and I started reading the dream, and this was the first time that the power of the Book of Mormon literally distilled upon my soul. I, I could feel it. I was drawn in. I, I could visualize this dream, and it, the, the whole thing became uh, profoundly real to me at a very young age. Uh, so, as we, as we jump in today, I love, I love this dream, and I love the fact that this particular dream of Lehi is going to have such an impact on future prophets and prophecies and their writings, the, the allusions and the comparisons and the, and the metaphor. Uh, it just keeps, it's a gift that just keeps on giving. So, let's begin. The, the first thing to keep in mind is it was a dream. Because it's a dream, that means Lehi, as he's sleeping, he's having this visionary dream, he's not conscious, he's not awake, he's not able to, to uh, interact with the elements of the dream directly. He's, it's like watching a movie. You can't change what the actors are doing, you just watch them and one of the actors happens to be him on this stage. It's very different from Nephi's vision that we're going to cover next time, which is chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, where Nephi is fully awake and he's able to interact with his tutors, the Spirit of the Lord and the angel. Uh, but in this case, there's something elegantly beautiful about Lehi just waking up and telling his family, and by extension us, about his dream. Now, if you think about it, when most people dream, they don't dream in words, they dream in images. You see things, they, they interact, and sometimes in very bizarre ways. Uh, in this particular case, pay close attention to those elements in the dream that are, that you would consider to be good versus that you would consider to be bad. Okay, so let's, let's just grab a couple of, of the, the easy ones for starters. You have a path, you have a rod of iron, you have a tree of life and that tree produces fruit. These are all good elements. They're, they all carry with them positive connotation and positive symbolism. You also have things like mists of darkness, you have the, the great and spacious building where you've got great multitudes who are in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers at those who are progressing. You have uh, forbidden paths, these, these directions people can take that would get them off of the straight and narrow way. You have strange roads. You also have things that are really profound in, in the dream or the additional element of the filthy uh, river. Now, I'm kind of cheating here. Here's why, because I'm adding the word filthy 
and Lehi didn't. It's Nephi later on having the vision who adds that little detail to the river that Lehi saw because he just mentions a river of water. Uh, and so we're going to get a lot of descriptions here, but we don't get a lot of interpretation in the dream. You have to wait for Nephi's vision to get most of the, the interpretations of here's what that represents or here's what that means. So I'm going to put the filthy here so that we can clarify that this particular river is bad. Okay, there's also a fountain of living water that would go over on this side. Now, let's get to some, uh, some of the elements that might be a little more difficult to, to qualify. Which side is it on? Look at chapter 8. As he opens in verse 2, he says, It came to pass that while my father tarried in the wilderness, he spake unto us, saying, Behold, I have dreamed a dream. Or, in other words, I have seen a vision. He clarifies, this wasn't just a funny dream because I had uh, too much food late at night and couldn't sleep well. He's saying, yes, I dreamed a dream, but it was a visionary dream. There's purpose. There's intent to it. It's, it's a vision from God that came through this dream format. Isn't it interesting that in the book of Joel, we're told that in the last days, uh, their old men shall dream dreams and their young men shall see visions. Well, here's a nice little comparison of that clear back in 600 BC happening exactly like that. Lehi dreaming a dream, Nephi seeing a vision, but uh, there's no question about the visionary nature of this particular dream. Just wanted to make that clear. Now, notice he says, verse 4, Behold, Laman and Lemuel, I fear exceedingly because of you, for behold, methought I saw in my dream a dark and dreary wilderness. Well, where do we put the dark and dreary wilderness? Most people watching this would think, come on, it's bad, it's dark, it's dreary, it belongs here. Um, and others would say, huh, the dark and dreary wilderness is neither good nor bad. It's, it just is. It's an environment. It's not inherently, the environment isn't inherently trying to hurt or do damage to Lehi. It just happens to be a wilderness area and the significant root of wilderness is wild, meaning it's untamed, it's, it's unpredictable. You're not sure what's, what's going to, to affect you in what way. You can't rely on your own capacities alone when you're in a wilderness, usually in this context. And so the fact that it's dark, it's dreary, implies that it's an opportunity for Lehi to learn some things, to discover some things about God and about himself as he goes through this. So, you can, in your own study, you can put these elements on any side of this line you want and it's totally fine. Uh, for the purposes of moving forward with this particular uh, representation of the dream, I'm going to stick the dark and dreary wilderness right here straddling the line as a neutral, so to speak, because my hunch is that many of you can think of times in your life when you went through a dark and dreary wilderness and while you were going through it, you were convinced it was bad. It was terrible. You, you would never wish it on anybody and you would never want to go back and repeat that particular trial or a similar trial or tribulation in your life. And yet, after you pass through that wilderness and get to the other side, you look back on it and my hunch is that many of you would say, you know, I didn't like it while it was happening, but now that I've been through it, I am so grateful that I had that experience and I'm so grateful that I learned what I did about the Lord and about myself in the process and about my loved ones around me. 
thus making that wilderness at the time being bad. In hindsight, it becomes this shaping, life-changing, eternity-clarifying and forming experience for you. Now look at verse 5. It came to pass that I saw a man, and he was dressed in a white robe, and he came and stood before me. A man in a white robe? Is he good or is he bad? Whenever I, whenever I teach this in, in a class, the traditional response from students is, well, he's good. And my obvious follow-up question is, why would you say he's good? And the answer usually is, well, he's wearing a white robe. Brothers and sisters, if all we have to do is wear a white robe to be good, then we can all just go out and buy white robes and walk around and be good. Uh, the reality is, is the devil can appear to people in the form of, uh, as an angel of light. He, he, he could wear a white robe too. So that's not the qualifier. Uh, now, having said that, however, I'm going to put the man clearly for me. You can put that man in a white robe anywhere you want on this scale, but for me, he's firmly on this side. Um, here's why. I think it's interesting that in the dream, right from the get-go, it begins in this metaphor for life, for what you could call mortality, our, our journey through the, the earth experience. It's this dark and dreary wilderness. We're, we're outside of the presence of our heavenly parents. We're no longer living in heaven. And we're trying to learn how to walk in this, in this world of ours, uh, walk in the light, even though sometimes it's really hard to find and really hard to see. I love the fact that right after introducing the problem, we get a traveling companion, a man in a white robe. To me, this man isn't just an angel or it isn't just the Holy Ghost. To me, symbolically, this man embodies, in a dreamlike symbolism, this man embodies everything about the Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything in this side of the, the symbolic elements, to me, point to Jesus Christ, all of these elements. And this one embodies him for me directly. Why? Because Lehi's in a dark place. He needs help. So what does God do? He sends his son to walk beside Lehi so that he won't be alone, so that he won't feel cut off and forsaken, so that he will have somebody to, to help guide him through this wilderness. Now, if you look at verse 6, it says, It came to pass that he spake unto me and bade me follow him. Come follow me is a phrase that Jesus likes to use in, in Scripture. And so, verse 7, it came to pass that as I followed him, I beheld myself that I was in a dark and dreary waste. Huh. Now, that's interesting. Logic would say that if I'm following Jesus, all of a sudden my life should get easy. All of a sudden I should just be walking in the light and, and everything's clear and I'm just prospering and every door of opportunity that I ever wanted is now just swinging open for me to just walk through. That's not what verse 7 said. Lehi's walking with this man and he still beheld that he was in a dark and dreary waste. In verse 8, after I traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me. Brothers and sisters, when you embark in the service of God, when you become a disciple of Christ, when you, when you enter into a covenant connection with him, he says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't tell you he's going to take away all problems and solve all of your issues. He just says, walk with me and take my yoke upon you because you can do it. Why can you do it? A yoke, by default, brings two people together. 
think of the yoke as yet another symbolic way or a different angle to look at what the covenant is with God. It's Jesus standing there with a yoke, and a yoke has two sides to it where you can bring these two animals together in, in a farm setting. So, he's standing there with the yoke and he's saying, come stand with me. I'll help pull with you. I'll walk with you. Now, some of you may be asking the question right now, well, why does it have to be so hard? If I, if I choose to follow Jesus, if I choose to enter a covenant relationship, why doesn't he make the path easier? Why doesn't life become simpler and more prosperous in all of the earthly ways? It's a valid question. I don't know if God sent us down to this earth in order to experience a life of just pleasure and ease and comfort and, and peace and prosperity 100% of the time. Why? Because as I, as I look at Scripture and as I look at my own life, I love those times of prosperity where there are wonderful blessings. But something happens when you go through trials, when you go through dark and dreary wilderness and dark and dreary waste periods of life where it stretches the soul, where, where you have to dig deep into your reservoir of faith and trust in God and say, do I really believe? This is hard and this is taking a lot longer, many more hours than I would have ever thought, or in some cases many more weeks or months years, and for some of you, decades of persevering in the darkness than you thought. Let, let me word it this way. If you're starting at point A and you need to get over to point Z and you've got this long, difficult journey to, to cover in order to get there, the man in the white robe to me signifies the fact that God says, Tyler, you have to walk this path. I need, you, I need you to get there. I need you to become that person. But I can't just pick you up and magically drop you there and have you become who I need you to become. I can't shape you. I can't refine you. I can't mold you and make you the, the instrument in my hands that I need you to be by just putting you somewhere. I need you to go through certain experiences, and some of them are dark and dreary for many, many hours, days, weeks, months, years. But what he does promise, as he said, I'm going to assure that you never have to walk that long, lonely, difficult, dark road completely in isolation or alone. I'm going to send you a traveling companion, so you'll never need to be alone. And that's where the Lord Jesus Christ comes into this, into this dream uh, uh, analogy. I love this. Let's review a couple of these uh, scriptures and pick up a bit of what Tyler talked about with the yoke. Uh, just for interest, I'd like to share with you a Sanskrit word that many of you have heard over the years called yoga. Uh, yoga is a discipline, a mental and physical, emotional, spiritual discipline. And it actually, uh, the word yoke and yoga are actually come from the same root word. And so it's all about being disciplined. It takes effort. Many of us have heard about yoga, but how many of us really do it? Because it takes a lot of time and effort and discipline. And Jesus asks us to be his disciple. And being a disciple takes a lot of effort. Now let's point our minds back to Abraham. We might call him, after Genesis 12, the first disciple of God. Think about what God did. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God says, Abraham, I want you to leave your homeland, your family, at least your father's home, and come to a new land. And Abraham yoked himself with God, had that discipline, and he came to the Holy Land. And what did he, did he discover? There's a famine. It's just like what we have here, Lehi following the man who bade him to follow him and find himself in a deep, dark, dreary wilderness. 
Now, some of us might say, wait a second, that's not fair. I chose to follow God's servant or to follow God, and what I thought was going to happen didn't, so God lied to me. I'm done. And if that's where you stopped, you might convince yourself you're right. Abraham could have chosen in Genesis 12 to call God a liar. You promised me land and children. In fact, it gets worse for Abraham. After he gets to the land of Canaan, where there's a famine, right? It's a dark and dreary wilderness. He and his wife, Sarah, go down to Egypt. And as you might remember in Genesis 12, Sarah gets stolen by the Pharaoh. And yet Abraham trusted God. Abraham was faithful to God. Abraham was righteous. He was loyal to God. He knew that God would keep his promises. And sure enough, Sarah was returned to him. They returned then to the Holy Land, and it was very a fruitful land, and they were able to prosper in the land. Now, I find this very interesting that Lehi, as a child of Abraham, descendant that is, has this dream that in some ways represents what we find from the first disciple, Abraham. The discipline of really what it means to follow God. It's a lot of effort. And at times it's, well, it's uncomfortable. But those who persist and endure and remember the mercy and tender mercies of the Lord will find that he will open up all things to them. And I want to dwell for a little bit on that word mercy. And Lehi even uses this word, the tender mercies, right here in verse 8. We might remember that Nephi told us the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith or their faithfulness or their persistence to make them mighty, even under the power of deliverance. Here is an example of Nephi's testimony that he gets from his own father, that Lehi persisted in faith and trusting God, calling upon the everlasting mercy of God. Now, the underlying word for mercy in Hebrew is hesed. And hesed refers to the quality of enduring, unswerving, total loyalty. And when God made the promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, it actually was chesed, or mercy. He was telling Abraham, I will do these things for you with unswerving loyalty. I promise that if you endure and trust me, Abraham, and all your descendants, which includes all of us, that I will fulfill my mercy to give all these things that I promised. It may not come quite when you think. You might discover that the promised land has a famine, or that your spouse is taken, or some other promised blessing is temporarily removed from you. But if you endure, if you trust, my chesed, my mercy, my tender mercies endure forever. They were always there. Even if for a short time, I'm let, I'm let you be challenged so that you can practice the discipline of being yoked with me. And so I love this vision or this dream that Lehi has, and particularly this opening part that we often kind of skip over because we want to get to the rod. <clears throat> we want to get to the rod. We want to get to the tree. But we miss this part of Lehi having to learn discipleship by wandering in a dark and dreary waste, which is life. But God has a plan, and none of us have to feel like we're fully abandoned because God's chesed, his mercy, his tender mercy, is always there for us. So wherever you are, in your life. Hang on to that. Just know that the scriptures have been written and preserved to show evidence that God's mercy always endures, even if for a time the people who are the heroes of the story seem to be suffering and struggling with no way out. Know that God is faithful, and that is the point of the scriptures, is to reveal that key characteristic of the God that we worship. Okay, so you'll notice that in verse 9, after he had prayed unto the Lord, he beheld a large and spacious field, and he beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. Now, look at the descriptions that he gives for the fruit in verse 11. 
it came to pass that I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof, and I beheld that it was most sweet above all that I ever before tasted. Yea, and I beheld that the fruit thereof was white to exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen. So, here's Lehi's experience with the tree and the fruit. And you're going to notice as we get a little later on in the, in the chapter, some other people are going to interact with the fruit and apparently they don't taste the same exquisite sweetness that Lehi does because they're going to leave the tree. Uh, now, let's, let's diagram this for a moment. So, I'm going to get rid of this. If we were to visualize this dream, especially these good elements over here, do you picture it as a large and spacious field with a nice little sidewalk that brings us over here to a tree of life and there happens to be a straight and narrow path with the rod of iron that leads to the tree going right beside. Is that, is that a good representation? We're just going along the rod to the tree. It's a fine representation and it's a dream, so you can represent it any way you want, whatever works for you to liken the scripture to your life. I don't prefer this particular representation because it's taking me from one level and there's very little increase. There's just a horizontal movement. I prefer looking at it this way. Um, I prefer seeing it as if you're walking in the mountains and it's a, a steep climb with lots of twists and turns. Now, some would say, wait, it says it's a straight and narrow path. Keep in mind that the spelling is not straight. It's a straight and narrow. This is probably more reminiscent of the, the Hebrew poetry technique of symbolic repetition where you say something and then you say it again using, using a synonym or a different way to say the same thing. It's straight and narrow. It doesn't guarantee that it's not going to have ups and downs and twists and turns. It just means it's, it's going to be pretty uh, slim as you're, as you're going along your journey. Now, with that in mind, you have this, this rod. I'll just depict the rod like this all along the path that leads to the tree. Now, look at that. Um, you have a path, a rod, and a tree. For those of you who like writing cross-references in your, in your scriptures, for these three elements, you could write John 14, verse 6, because it's here where Jesus teaches the people, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now look at the elements of Lehi's dream here for a moment. I am the way. Well, it's a pretty simple way to describe the path that we're supposed to tread. I am the truth. The iron rod is the word of God. Interesting because John chapter 1 verse 1 begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The iron rod is the word of God. Well, there you go. A nice symbol for how Jesus is both your path and the rod. He's, he's symbolized in different ways by both physical elements. 
and I am the life. Well, we call the tree the tree of life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, those, those are three elements that point us to Christ, and I would recommend to you that every good symbol in the scripture is simply another lens, another way that you can look to see different aspects of the Savior's mission, his life, his love, his infinite atonement, his mercy, his, his character, his attributes. You see Jesus through all of these beautiful symbols. Kind of like you can see the opposition from the devil in a lot of the negative symbols that you find in Scripture. For instance, there's that river. It's a river of filthy water, like I said before, that uh, Nephi points out. And the river is flowing here. Notice, notice carefully what he says about that river. Look at verse 19. I beheld a rod of iron, and it extended along the bank of the river and led to the tree by which I stood. Have you noticed that if that's true, that the river is side by side with the path? So, this is kind of a side angle of, of a visualization of the dream, but if you picture being on the path and you've got the rod here, it says that the rod is extending along the bank of the river. That means at the bottom of the rod, it's the bank of the river. Well, if you're on the path, you know that the bottom of the rod is also on the, the immediate side of the path. Now, wait a minute. That means that the Lord allowed the devil to put this river right next to the path that leads to eternal life, and it's Nephi who gives us the interpretation that the river represents the bitterness of hell, the depths of hell. It, it represents all of those, those opposing forces that the devil uh, throws at us, and it's side by side, right next to the very path that represents Jesus himself that brings us to the tree where we partake of the fruit, and the ultimate fruit being his, his infinite atonement which leads to eternal life. The question then uh, remains, why would God put his path and his rod right next to the river that represents the, the bitterness of hell? Or why would God allow the devil to put the bitterness of hell so close to the path that leads to eternal life? In asking that question, you'll notice that the implication is that we're on the path, we're holding onto the rod, we're always good. 100% of the time, we're, we're perfect. And why do we have to deal with the, the bitterness of hell right next to this effort that we have to move forward? The older I've gotten, the more I've realized that it was a merciful God who put the, the path and the rod where he did and allowed the devil to have his temptations where they are, right next to us. Why? Because all of us have spent time in that river. All of us have, have thought how refreshing it would be to just give in and, and relax and float for a little, because look, it's pretty still water right there, and what started as a, perhaps a, a a refreshing diversion in a, in a carnal way can quickly turn into rapids and waterfalls where we can get beat up, spiritually speaking, and I see it as a loving God who put the rod right on the bank of the river so that when we need help, when we need that beautiful gift of forgiveness that comes through the Savior's infinite atonement and his mercy as we repent and reach for him and call out for help, that it's right there.
on the bank of the river. He doesn't say to us, pull yourself out of the river and then try to work your way through this, this dark and dreary wilderness back to the path. No, it was a merciful God who put his son right on the bank of that river, reaching into the depths of hell, willing to pull you and me out whenever we, we start working our way away from the tree and headed in the other direction. Now watch as people start interacting with this, with this uh, path and the rod working their way towards the tree. And you'll notice that the first thing that happened with Lehi when he made it to the tree was he had this desire for his family to partake. So he turns and, and he has these interactions with Sam and Nephi and Sariah in verse 14, and they come. He can't get Laman and Lemuel to come to him, and that's what has him concerned in verse 17 and 18. But then he starts describing other groups. So watch verse 24. It came to pass that I beheld others pressing forward, and they came forth and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. Now watch as he describes their interactions on this path. We could call this the covenant path. We could call this this straight and narrow way. It could be a beautiful symbol for what it means to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in, in one symbolic way. Why? Because we know that baptism is a gate that gets us onto the path that leads to eternal life. So in, in that symbolic lens, we could see this as members of the church. What, what does it mean? And what does discipleship look like? And what does that covenant connection with Christ look like? And how do people uh, interact with him? And, and how do they treat their discipleship? So look at the verbs. He beheld others. They were pressing forward. They came forth. They caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. And they did press forward through the mists of darkness. So there are temptations that come that try to cloud our vision, that make it so that you can't see the end goal. You're not sure where you're even headed anymore at times. And it says, they press forward through the mist of darkness, clinging to the rod of iron, even until they did come forth and partake of the fruit of the tree. So there's an interesting difference in this group. So in verse 24, this group makes it all the way to the tree, to partake of the tree. The, the verb that Lehi used here is clinging to the rod of iron as they pressed forward. And you'll notice with this kind of a depiction, it was Elder Neal A. Maxwell who, who spoke about this many years ago when, when he said something along these lines. He said, the straight and narrow path is so steep in certain places that you can't hope to progress unless you're on your knees. It's too steep. You, you can't walk. You can't just uh, climb nonchalantly. You have to inch your way forward on your knees. Um, this particular version depicts, for me, a mortal life, where there are times when you have breathtaking blessings and experiences where you're, where you're on top of this, this plateau, so to speak, and you can see the vista behind you, and, and you can see where you've been, and it's just beautiful, and the air is clear, and you feel invigorated, and it's wonderful. And then there are other times. There are times when you're working through a long and, quite frankly, miserable trial or tribulation where the way is so steep that you're, you feel like you're making zero progress and you're going nowhere because you, you, you slip and you slide and there, there are patches of snow or rock slides. There are dark nights. 
there are severe storms that come up out of nowhere while you're hiking up in this, in this mountain analogy. And you can feel cold, you can feel disoriented, you can feel forsaken. Uh, and it's all mixed in together. And we're all walking our, our unique journey that Christ has laid out for each of us individually as his disciples. And uh, it can be pretty frustrating for some. Hence, I like the, the, the difference here in verse 24 when he says they were clinging to the rod. Now hold that. Let's go to another group for a moment for contrast. I'm just going to give you the end here before we go through verse 30. The end of this story is the group in 24, they did their best and we're not judging them, we're not condemning them, we're not making fun of them. They did their best. They came to the tree, they partook the fruit. But in verse 25 it says, after they had partaken of the fruit of the tree, they did cast their eyes about as if they were ashamed. It's almost as if when they partook of the fruit, they weren't, they weren't filled with that exquisite um, taste that Lehi describes being sweeter than anything they'd ever tasted before. They're eating the fruit. After this long journey, they finally got there, they're eating the fruit, and it's as if they're saying, is this it? Is this all there is? And then they're casting their eyes round about as if they were ashamed, almost as if to say, ooh, should I have done this? Is there, is there something else I should be pursuing instead? And by the way, that's when he introduces the great and spacious building, when you can see this, this large building filled with people, both old and young, both male and female. Their manner of dress was exceedingly fine, and they were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers toward those who had come at and were partaking of the fruit. By the way, just as a side note, when you point a finger of scorn at somebody, you'll notice that you have three pointing back at you, just as a, as a symbolic side note. And I also believe it was Elder Maxwell who said, when somebody points a finger of scorn at you for, for your desires and your efforts to be good, simply follow their directions. Turn around and, and walk away rather than engage. Now that won't work for all of you in every situation, but it's, uh, it's a clever way to consider the situation. Now look at verse 28. After they had tasted of the fruit, they were ashamed because of those that were scoffing at them, and they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. Now contrast that with the group in verse 30. But to be short in writing, behold, he saw other multitudes pressing forward, and they came and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. So, so far it's the same. And they did press their way forward, continually holding fast. Notice the difference here, the contrast. They're clinging to the rod. They're continually holding fast. I, I don't know all of the implications. Uh, and keep in mind, Lehi's sharing this dream in Hebrew with his family. Nephi's writing it down in Reformed Egyptian or an Egyptian script. Then it gets translated into English in 1829. Uh, and the way it comes to us in English is clinging and continually holding fast. So, we may be reading more into this than we should, than maybe what it was in its original telling from Lehi, but I have to say we, we, we're, we're, we have the English, so we're going to go with what we've got, and there is a difference between these two in English. To me, clinging implies something uh, like plastic wrap or cling wrap, where it just it locks on to something. To me, that word denotes fear. And this is just Tyler speaking. This isn't, this isn't anything official or speaking for the church. To me, somebody in my mind's eye, if I'm making a movie of this and I'm having actors go up the, the path holding to the rod, if they're clinging, it's this fearful, oh no, uh, I'm scared to death kind of a of a of an approach 
to the Word of God. There's something about the phrase continually holding fast. This, They're both constant, but this one feels more like it's driven by a steadiness of faith, a confidence in God and in the rod rather than a fear of what I'm capable of doing that's bad. It's a faith in what God's perfectly capable of doing that's good is how it, it, it comes through for me in its implication. Continually holding fast means that I never completely am isolated or let go of the rod. I'm continually holding fast, but I'm not, I'm not fearfully clinging to it as I progress in fear. I love God, I trust Him, and I'm going to continually move forward, which ironically frees us up to be able to look around and perhaps help other people come to Christ, come to the rod as well, beckon to others to come as well. Now watch the, the end of verse 30. They're continually holding fast to the rod of iron until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. Did you notice this? Look at the, look at the order. They came forth, they fell down, and then they partook of the tree, the, the fruit of the tree. That, brothers and sisters, is a very, very peculiar order. If you and I were to go into a, into a fruit orchard of some kind, and I said, let's have a competition. We're going to pick fruit and see who, who picks more and better fruit. You are going to go in, you're going to fall down under the trees, and you're going to partake of the fruit. And I'm going to go in, and I'm going to take a ladder, and I'm going to climb up, and I'm going to partake of fruit. Who's going to get the best fruit? In fact, in professional uh, or, or commercial orchards, they're not allowed by, by law in most countries to sell fruit that has fallen off the tree to the ground. Or, I guess you could picture the tree of life having boughs that come really low to the ground and the fruit is growing down there, so they're picking it low, low-hanging fruit. That's possible. What I'm getting at here is that this is not a logical progression if you're talking about picking fruit off of a fruit tree. But what if we're not talking about a fruit tree? What if we take seriously the idea that all good symbols are simply placeholders or symbolic types or shadows for Christ? We already talked about Jesus being the path, Jesus being the rod, I am the way, the truth, what if it's not a tree, but that's just a symbolic placeholder for the real thing? From a distance in a dark and dreary wilderness, if you're in this large and spacious field, and from a distance, if you see the, the Lord of the outstretched arms, this God of resplendent glory and light, I think it's a pretty good analogy to use to refer to him as a tree of life a tree of light in that distance from the dark and dreary perspective that you have out there in the, in the wilderness. And then you can picture climbing, and when you're climbing in these kinds of, of mountains, you say, oh, there's the top, I can do that, and you get to the top only to realize it's a false summit. It wasn't the top at all, it just looked like the top. You catch your breath and then say, okay, there's the top, and then you get there to realize it's not the top either, and then you say, there's the top, and you keep going. Brothers and sisters, life on this earth, especially life on the covenant path, is a lot like that. God gives us these bite-sized chunks to work on, and he, he doesn't show us the end he gives us the next phase, the next step, the next mission to accomplish. 
and we work at it, work at it, work at it. Can you picture a person after a long life of going through all these experiences and coming up over the rise to realize, okay, I finished that, that part of, of my mortal calling, my mission in, in life, catch your breath, get some more direction, more blessings, and say, okay, there's the next one I need to tackle. Can you picture a person going through a lifetime of that and then on one occasion coming up over the top and realizing this is the top. I did arrive. Then they would come forth, fall down, and partake of the fruit of the tree if they recognize that it's not just a fruit tree but it's the Son of God himself. Then that, that order is beautiful and it's perfect because after this long life of discipleship, realizing that Jesus is the way that we've been, we've been living our life the way he's, he's laid out for us and he tread alone for us in the past. We've been holding to him. There's, there's some beautiful power in visualizing not just holding on to, to a piece of metal, but reaching out and holding on to the almighty hand of the Son of God as we walk that path of life. And then we get to the top only to realize it's him. Come unto Christ. It's him. Then you come forth, fall down, and there partake of the fruit. It's beautiful symbolism. If it's not really a fruit tree, but if it's the Son of God, to have this group experience that. Now you'll notice the group back in 24, there's no mention of them ever falling down. There's no mention of them seeming to recognize what it is that they've arrived at, and so they feel ashamed. I don't know if it's because they've lived their life in fear and the fear of, am I missing out on something else? Is there, is there more? Did, did, did I mess up? Versus this group in verse 30 who moves forward in faith, recognizes him for, for whom he is and for what he is, and now they're partaking of that incredible uh, sweet fruit of his infinite love and his mercy and his atonement, which leads to eternal life. So I'd like to share a thought about the word rod and then tell a story that came, comes from my own life that represents this experience. But I just wanted to share with you just a fun little insight that in Egyptian, the word rod is actually also the same Egyptian word that they use for word. So it appears that Nephi and Lehi are actually using a, a word play that the word is the rod and the rod is the word. And so what are you holding on to, holding fast to the word of God? And as we talked about earlier, when we consider what is learned in the Gospel of John, Jesus is that word. That is what we hold on to. Jesus is the word. He is the rod. And now a personal story. So I've had the privilege of leading tour groups to the Holy Land on occasion. And uh, some years ago, I had the opportunity to have my brother join me. My wife usually uh, does join me, but she was having some health issues, uh, foot surgery, and so my brother took her spot, and uh, my brother TJ. And we had a great time. It was fabulous to be able to travel with my brother. If I recall, it was his first time out of the country, and I was able to introduce him to this land that I love that I've spent so much time in. And we went with uh, a family from my ward, just a, a lovely family, the Vanderhorsts, and we traveled um, in the Holy Land down to Masada. And before we went to Masada, we stopped at a place called um, Nahal David. It's actually a little, uh, a little creek. It's a very narrow ravine, and it gets serious flash floods. and gets to be kind of a raging torrent, filthy water, and which also might be related to things that Lehi saw in his dream. Well, we decided to go hike up to some of these uh, small little waterfalls that were up this creek. And it was actually, there were some very steep, wet areas. 
And it's very interesting, the path that we had to follow was, it was narrow, but also was steep in areas. And there actually was an iron rod that we had to hold on to. And I still this day just feel so grateful to uh, the Vanderhorst family um, for helping my brother who was dealing with just a bit of uh, balance issues at one point, helping him along as we were all uh, continually holding fast to the iron rod as we're walking through this narrow gorge and there was this, this creek here. And at the time I just thought, this is stunning that I'm having this life experience of what it means to hold fast to a rod along a creek in this narrow place where we want to go see this beautiful vegetation, right? You know, near the fountain of water at the end. And it's actually in a location that may have been in the very spot or nearby where Lehi had been camping out, having his dream. Now, we don't know exactly where Lehi was when he had his dream, but he may have been near the area. And I just found it beautiful on so many levels, but in particular, just the, the social experience of seeing individuals helping one another along the path as they, all, as they all strove to hold on to that rod, which would lead to the great payoff of the beautiful experience of being at the tree. So we invite you to remember that this process of holding to the rod, it's an ongoing one. Sometimes we might get a little tired or discouraged, but know that there are people in our community willing to provide supporting hands and help. And maybe you could do that for somebody in your sphere of influence. You could be there in front of them, calling out to them, encouraging them, lending them a hand to help guide them to the rod, to the Word of God, or maybe behind them and giving them a boost. Wherever you are, whatever stage of life, just know that as we try to serve and minister and support other people on their journey, it will also help us to stay fast holding on to the rod and to staying on that narrow path that will lead us to God. Now remember that in the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, or in the original manuscript, there aren't chapter breaks the way we have them here. The, the chapters that Nephi gave us are much longer. So remember the, the first one was 1 Nephi chapters 1 through 5. His second chapter is 6 through 9. So he gives you two chapters of, of Nephi's own abridgment of Lehi's book. And so here's chapter 8 nestled in, in this block. Then in chapter 9, he tells you about the fact that he's making two sets of plates. The large plates first and then the second set is the smaller plates and he's describing those. Notice what he says very quickly in verse chapter 9, verse 5, wherefore the Lord hath commanded me to make these plates, that would be the small plates, for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. You'll notice that even for God's prophets, there are times when God asks them to do things and go to the next level, and they have no idea why. And if, if the world or the culture of their day were to press them for a good reason why they're going to all this effort, the only answer they could give is, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. This is beautiful for us, knowing the end story of the 116 lost pages and how God is putting the solution in place clear back here at the very beginning to fix the problem that is going to be created in 1828. Uh, it's remarkable. Then Nephi opens up his third chapter, which for us is chapter 10, and now he's telling his own story. Notice he finished uh, chapter 9, verse 6, with Amen. Now he opens up 10, verse 1. Now I, Nephi, proceed to give an account upon these plates of my proceedings and my reign and ministry. Wherefore, to proceed with mine account, I must speak somewhat of the things of my Father. So now he describes this, uh, he goes into the Babylonian captivity that, that dad has been prophesying to the Jews would happen. Uh, look at verse 6, wherefore all mankind were in a lost and in a fallen state and ever would be, save they should rely on this Redeemer. Are you seeing allusions back to Lehi's dream of 
there are all these strange roads and forbidden paths, and there's this this river that could be this gorge right next to this path by the iron rod, and flash floods can come through at any time in these in these uh, riverbeds and wadis and destroy uh, people. And he's saying we're all lost. We're all in a fallen state unless we rely on this Redeemer. Well, Lehi's dream gave you the ways to rely on him. Get on his path. Make that covenant connection with him through baptism. Hold fast to that rod of iron. Trust that God knows more than we know about what we need to do and rely on his words that come to us through the scriptures and the words of our living prophets, and we press forward, relying on on the Redeemer. Then as you turn the page over, he, he tells you of his own desires. This is where we'll end in verse 17. It came to pass that after I, Nephi, had heard all the words of my father concerning the things which he saw in a vision, and also the things which he spake by the power of the Holy Ghost, which power he received by faith on the Son of God, and the Son of God was the Messiah who should come. I, Nephi, notice the verbs, was desirous that I might see and hear and know of these things by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is the gift of God unto all those who diligently seek him, as well in times of old as in the times that he should manifest himself unto the children of men. Brothers and sisters, Nephi was an ideal student. He didn't sit there and listen to his dad tell the story and say, oh, good for you, Dad. Nephi said, no, I want to know for myself. We live in a day and age where we have prophets, apostles, and church leaders of the different organizations who speak to us, and it's one thing to listen to them and say, okay, I'll I'll just take your word for it, and it's another to desire deep in our soul to want to see and hear and know of these things by the power of the Holy Ghost, and to go to God and say, teach me, what can I do to actually live these truths that have been taught, and what does it look like in my life, in my sphere? In closing, brothers and sisters, the the Savior never seemed to promise us a, a smooth paved sidewalk with a guardrail, but he did promise us that if we would take his yoke upon us, if we would come unto him through baptism and get on that path, enter in at that gate, and endure to the end and persevere, continually holding fast with faith that he would save us, that he would bring us to the Father and and present us spotless to him. Now, as you embark on your day or your week that's in front of you right now. Some of you may be in that kind of an experience right now. Some of you may be on on a mountain peak. Some of you may be at the very beginning. Some of you may, may be nearing the very end. You're just moments away from being able to have incredible experiences. Here's the point. Wherever you are on the path, whatever element of mortality you're experiencing on that covenant path as a disciple of Christ. Rather than getting discouraged because you're not further along or looking back and wondering why other people are struggling so much, wherever you are, what the Lord is inviting each and every one of us to do is take the next step forward. Take the next footstep of faith to come closer to him. And that is our prayer, that we will be able to do that today, and that you'll be able to do that today, and that you'll be able to encourage your family and your loved ones and those around you to be able to do that today. There are a lot of mists of darkness out there. There are a lot of forbidden paths and a lot of strange roads, and there are a lot of deep, dark uh, canyons and rivers that are dangerous for people. So may the Lord bless us all as we collectively and individually move onward and upward on this covenant path towards the Savior, with the Savior's help, with our hand in his, is our prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In this week of Gospel Explorer, 
we gain deeper insights into coming to Christ and partaking of the fruit of the tree of life. Our path on the left side takes us into a deeper study of the family, a proclamation to the world. You can really dig into this topic with numerous videos and resources highlighting the words of our modern prophets on this important theme. The middle path takes you on a journey of studying the power that God gives to us to overcome adversity by holding fast to the rod of iron. You'll want to watch these videos to gain strength as you go through your trials and opposition, especially if you feel that you are alone in your desire to follow Christ. The last path will take you into a study of faith and actively following the Lord. One branch will focus on how revelation helps us in making faith-filled decisions, while the other branch focuses on developing the faith to act on that revelation. We hope that this resource continues to deepen your desire to come unto Christ and develop a closer relationship with Him. 